welcome to this BGSM podcast. I'm Stefan Griffin, a fourth year medical student at the University of Birmingham and a member of the BGSM editorial team. I'm thrilled to be delighted by Dr. Nigel Jones on today's podcast, England rugby senior team doctor who has also worked with the likes of Liverpool FC and British Gymnastics. Welcome, Nigel. Hi, Stefan. Nice to be joining you. Well, I think there's only one place to start, and that has to be with rugby. Um, but first of all, how does it feel? And it must be a great, a great thing to be involved with the squad at a home at a home World Cup and one of the biggest sporting events in the world. Yeah, absolutely, Stefan. I think the um, the overriding feeling really is one of honour and privilege. Um, those of us who are lucky enough to work in professional sports realise what an honour that is and certainly the chance to work with an international team at a World Cup may only come round once in your professional career and certainly a home World Cup probably once only you know in your lifetime so um, yeah the overriding feeling to be honest is one of honour and privilege. And with the Rugby World Cup, what have been the biggest challenges for you in terms of preparing a squad for such a high level of competition? I think what people need to realise is that preparation for this World Cup really started, you know, at least 12 months ago. And one of the biggest challenges was transitioning the players from their club environment into an international environment over the summer because obviously the rugby premiership season finished for different players at different times depending on whether they were involved in the playoffs at the end of the season etc and it was also really important that all the players got chance for a decent physiological and psychological rest before they came into the World Cup preparation camps. Um, we had to obviously have some robust discussions and decisions made with the clubs over players' injury status and when the best timing of any, for example, surgical intervention was to make sure that they were fit and available for what also for them potentially is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So one of the challenges has been making sure that they were all coming into the camp as phys- you know, physically, physiologically and psychologically robust as they possibly could be. From reading in the press that injuries have proven to be a real issue for some nations of the World Cup, how, are, how hard is it to balance the obvious need for quite intense conditioning without trying to run the players into the ground? Uh, I mean, obviously, it can be difficult. The the coaches obviously want as much on-field coaching time with the players as possible. Um, our job as a whole performance team, you know, not just medical, but sports science uh, as well, is to make sure we make robust decisions around a player's medical and injury status as well as their physiological and psychological load and feed that information back to the the coaches as appropriate. One of the things that I think all international teams probably do is a lot of individual player profiling. 
So even though it's a team sport and they clearly need to be exposed to a lot of team-based sessions, it's really important that we look at each of the players as a, you know, as an independent athlete. And there may be individual resilience work that we need to do with those players, depending on their age, their position, their previous injury history. And during sort of the camp, we as a performance team, we'll, we'll meet every day and to review the medical and physiological status of each of the players. And, you know, part of my job is to feed that information back to the coaches so that if we feel that a particular session for a particular player needs to be amended, then, you know, we feed that information back to the coaches and hope that obviously that they, um, they will take account of that in modifying the session. Okay, you've touched on uh, player and performance profiling there a little bit. What sort of modalities do you use to monitor players, whether it's physiologically or psychologically, as you mentioned? Well, every day there's various um, things that we ask the players to do, normally on waking of a morning, which will inform us to a certain extent what kind of condition they're in. We collect subjective wellness data, um, subjective, um, you know, perceived exertion data around the previous day's load. But we also back that up with some more objective measures, like um, for those with a history of lower limb problems, we may do adductor squeeze testing or you know, ankle dorsiflexion, knee to wall testing, and we'll do that on a daily basis so that hopefully we can pick up if an athlete is struggling uh, before it becomes a major problem. And as I discussed previously, hopefully modify their load accordingly to stop them breaking down. So Stefan, it's, it's a variety of subjective and objective data that we use. Okay, and I imagine one quite important thing once you've collected the data is getting buy-in from the coaches regarding this, especially when it comes to advising about sessions. How have you found, sort of, have you got any top tips for any aspiring clinicians in terms of dealing with coaches so, they, so you can have buy-in? I think the you know, successful management groups, successful performance teams, the the overwhelming culture has to be one of trust. Um, they, you know, the coaches have to understand why we collect the data we collect and how we are going to present it to them. And I think very early in any relationship where you join a new management group and you have and you're building relationships with coaches, you know, try and find out what sort of level of knowledge they have around sports medicine and sports science and you know ask them what they'd like to learn more about ask them probably most importantly how they'd like to have data presented to them because you know whoever you are whether you're a player a member of the performance team or a member of the coaching 
team, you need to have information presented to you in a way that you can understand it. And sometimes coaches will want information presented to them in a different way, even between that group. You know, our forwards coach may want data presented to him in a different way than our defence coach or our skills coach might do. So I think the, you know, any tip I would give anybody coming into any performance environment would be, you know, make sure that you can adapt your communication with others in order to make sure that the people who you are talking to understand the information that you're giving them. Because without that understanding, you know, clearly you're not going to make any progress. In terms of rugby medicine, one thing that's sort of become synonymous with it when there's been in the press a lot is concussion. I don't think we can um, have a podcast without touching it. We've seen a few so far at the Rugby World Cup, but thankfully no real controversies. What measures are in place to ensure that concussed players are recognised and removed immediately? Well, to their credit, one of the things that World Rugby have done is that they made uh, an online concussion education module compulsory for all participants in the tournament. Obviously, there is a set of minimum criteria that medical staff working at the competition have to achieve and satisfy. But it was compulsory for all players, all coaches, all administration staff to complete the World Rugby Online Concussion Education module. And I think you know, I think that's that's helped significantly. You know, I've seen a significant change in the last two to three years around players wearing concussive head injuries as a badge of honour. Um, that was certainly the case, you know, until relatively recently. But I think with increased education has, has come for the players a realisation that, you know, they need to take a potential concussive head injury as seriously, if not more seriously than they would, you know, an ankle injury, a knee injury, a shoulder injury or whatever. And I'm not sure that was always the case before. In terms of match day provision, there is an independent match day doctor at, um, at every game who ultimately has jurisdiction over the head injury assessment process. So with the aid of video review and another medical professional watching, um, you know, feedback, Hawkeye feedback from many different angles of the whole game, if the match day doctor supported by the video review doctor feel that there's a potential concussive head injury being missed by the pitch side medics then that will you know that will be fed by the match day doctor to the pitch side medics and the player will be brought off um, either for a head injury assessment if there's any doubt or obviously permanent removal if they fit any of the well recognized now criteria for permanent substitution. So I think to their credit, um, you know, World Rugby have done a lot in the lead up to this tournament to try and make the management of potential concussive head injury as safe as it can be. Okay, that's great to hear. And I think, like you said, World Rugby deserve a bit of a, a pat on the back for doing that. And what we'll do as well in the um, podcast description, we'll include a link to the freely available 
uh, resources and the website um, the World Rugby um, have on concussions so people can undergo the test uh, in their own time. Moving on from rugby medicine um, a little bit now, you're also involved with the BASM executive panel as the education chair. To those looking to work within SEM or sort of interested in the specialty, how do you see the training progressing over the next few years? Yeah, it's interesting because as well as being um, BASM Education Chair, um, I'm also involved with Sport and Exercise Medicine Education by being Training Programme Director for the Sport and Exercise Medicine Training Programme in the Northwest. And it's interesting actually to see things from both perspectives because I think going forward, Sport and Exercise Medicine in the UK will continue to be provided by a mix of people. Um, so there will be those who want to do the recognised um, specialty training programmes and get a CCT in the specialty, but there will also be a significant place going forward uh, for those individuals who have Sport and Exercise Medicine as a special interest but who don't actually have it as their their principal job. I mean, ultimately, the faculty via the SAC is responsible for the sort of specialty training programmes nationally, and they are currently under review at the moment. One of the big challenges we have as a specialty is that at the moment, there are insufficient NHS jobs available for those who are finishing their sport and exercise medicine training. And clearly, it's just not good financial sense for the health service to be training people predominantly for private practice. Um, so certainly as part of the curriculum review that is going on at the moment at faculty level um, you know there may well be sort of um, more um, sort of more physician training and more physician work um, within the, the training program going forward and it may be that there's lots of things I think on the table at the moment there's dual accreditation as a possibility with other specialties like accident and emergency or there is sport and exercise medicine being a sort of post general internal medicine um, CCT fellowship for example um, but you know, clearly until we get much larger numbers of sport and exercise medicine physicians working in the NHS, be that with an exercise medicine hat on, a public health hat on, or a sort of musculoskeletal assessment hat on, um, I think, you know, that there will be changes to the specialty training programme as we go forward. Um, BASM's main remit, of course, is education for all professionals who are involved in sport and exercise medicine, whether they are looking to be on the specialist register or not. And certainly one of the things that we try and do is provide courses and conferences that are relevant to all medical health professionals, um, not just doctors, but physiotherapists and sports scientists as well, who are obviously BASM associate members. And we try and provide a broad scope 
of education that, that satisfies the needs of all of our members. Um, so, yeah, two slightly, in a way, two slightly different, but, you know, synergistic uh, roles really between the faculty and BASM. Okay, in, in terms of the training pathway, it seems like it's a case of watch this space. I'm sure there'll be a lot of things on Twitter and sort of in the, in the BASM, FSM sort of domains about that. Um, keeping with BASM, um, one of your roles has been overseeing the planning of the annual conference this year in Cardiff on the 12th and 13th of November. Um, we, uh, to, to students and I think to a lot of trainees, it's seen as one of the, um, the unmissable events in the UK SEM calendar. Can you sort of provide a flavour of what, what we can expect this year? BASM, as well as obviously being sort of the independent um, organisation, is also under a memorandum of understanding we have with the faculty, is also effectively the education arm of the faculty outside of um, specialty training. And, you know, I have to, my job as education chair for BASM is to oversee all the courses, so including the foundation course, the clinical skills course, and the exercise medicine course. And the majority, I have to give great thanks to them, of the organisation um, of the actual annual congress in Wales has been with um, Leo um, and Anathos and uh, Jeff Davis, who've done um, great work in putting the programme together. It's a great mix of rugby medicine, of exercise medicine. There is um, two great keynote speakers um, and there is a you know hopefully there are sessions that appeal to absolutely everybody who's involved in sport and exercise medicine um, so yeah I would encourage um, everybody to attend and support BASM in their desire to be the sort of principal provider of SEM education in the UK. Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say that it's a no-brainer, and hopefully, like you said, there'll be a good crowd this year. Um, but what we'll do is we'll include the link to the conference in the podcast description as well. Um, but in the meantime, I think, Nigel, thanks ever so much for your time. Really appreciate it, especially know how busy you are. And good luck uh, with the game on Saturday. Thank you very much. I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's a big sense of frustration around the um, England camp at the moment, but we... You know, we owe it to all the England rugby supporters to put a big performance in on Saturday. You know, congratulations to Australia and to Wales for getting through the group. And, um, you know, we wish them success um, in the latter stages of the of the tournament. Um, but thanks for your good wishes about the game on Saturday. That may have been difficult for you as a Welshman, Stefan, but um, I'll, I'll take that anyway. So, um, listen, thanks very much. And, um, yeah, it's been good to do the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Listeners, you've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Nigel Jones. We really hope you've enjoyed it. And please don't hesitate to contact us on social media with any feedback or suggestions, be it Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, or via the app. Hope to see you at the BASM conference in November and have a great physically active day. Thank you.